In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10. The prophet Samuel pours oil on Saul's head to anoint him as king and gives him three signs to prove that God has chosen him. Samuel then gathers the people of Israel and presents Saul as their monarch. The people rejoice and shout, long live the king, but not everyone is happy with this new arrangement. Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Wednesday, May 10th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in various languages. Visit them online to learn more about their translating and publishing work and how you can get involved at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, join me in welcoming my guest to help us open up and discern and divide 1 Samuel chapter 10. It's the Reverend Dr. Curtis Dieterding, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Myers, Florida. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Good to, good to be here this morning. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. And I'm so happy to have you, too. Uh, um, just anything going on with you on your neck of the woods down there in Fort Myers? Um, well, we're just getting ready to uh, head into rainy season, which begins June 1st. It's also known as hurricane season, so we do actually have a season for that from June 1st through November 30th. So um, that's about all that's new right now. Pretty much a lot of the snowbirds who have been down here for the winter have gone back north because it's warming up up there again, so they're going back. And, um, yeah, other than that, it's it's gotten quiet. It gets a little quiet around here once that happens. So, um, yeah, because the majority of the people here in the wintertime are from up north, at least in this area where we're at. So, Well, I had some parishioners who visited down your way just this last weekend, and they said they uh, visited your church. Uh, you weren't there, they said, but they did get to visit your church. <laughs> Yeah, I was uh, I was actually marrying my middle daughter uh, over the weekend in uh, in a northern section of uh, Florida here called Crystal River, and so yeah, we were we were busy doing that this past weekend, and um, my uh, director of Christian education filled in and and uh, read one of my sermons for the congregation that day. So. Interesting. Well, uh, happy nuptials to your daughter then. And um, well, today's text, we're dealing with another type of celebration, so to speak. It's going to be the anointing of the king, of King Saul. Um, and sort of an interesting time for us to be talking about kings, since just across the oh, pond, yes. as I mentioned yesterday, we had the coronation of King Charles III. So uh, for people who like that kind of stuff, um, there are some similar elements in what happened uh, with the king over in uh, the United Kingdom and also what happened with Saul. Yes, uh, that was actually the day that my uh, daughter was married, was on that day. I said, well, now you'll oh. always be re be able to remember, you know, when uh, King Charles was crowned. Well, that's, of course, <laughs> assuming that I'll remember when King Charles was crowned. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, before we dive into our text today, I'd love to have you begin our time together with a prayer. Thank you. Gracious God, we come before you, and uh, we call you gracious because of the grace that is ours through all that your Son Jesus has done for us, gracing us with 
the forgiveness of sins, the promise of salvation, life everlasting. Today we hear a word about the office of king, an office that Jesus himself filled. But we also hear how this kingdom, or this king, began uh, in a series of kings that would follow. And we pray that you would be with us and bless us uh, with your word again this day so that this part of the history of your people connects to us again, connecting us always to the greatest king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ our Lord. Upon our time together, we ask for your blessing and the power of your spirit to work in our hearts. In the name of our King Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, yesterday when we gathered around God's Word, we had that Saul, accompanied by a young man as a servant, uh, found their way to Samuel. And, and Samuel had called Saul and said, well, listen, go meet me up on this hill. I have some important things to tell you from God. And that's kind of where we left off. Verse 27 of chapter 9 says, As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may, may, that I may make known to you the word of God. That word we're going to hear today. Um, any other things you want to lay down as a foundation before we get into the text of chapter 10? Well, I just, uh, just a refresher, maybe, uh, for maybe some listeners that has, have not been with you over the last few uh, chapters. And, of course, uh, there has been a cry uh, from the people of God for a king. And uh, what's really interesting is that um, the Lord tried to discourage them <laughs> and uh, warn them about uh, what the king is going to do. You know, once a king is in place, and this is what it's going to mean to all of you, and they didn't care. They still wanted a king. And so, and so God allows this to take place uh, through his prophet Samuel. And uh, Samuel uh, then is led, of course, to uh, select a king, uh, which is uh, Saul. And, and, of course, he gives him all kinds of instructions and so forth about how to uh, finally get to him so that he can... Uh, officially, like you said, you know, coronate him or, or crown him as, as king. And so that's where we're coming to right now. We're coming to that point. Um, three offices in the Old Testament that were anointed with oil was the office of prophet, which Samuel himself held, and then a king, of course, and also the priests. So uh, three offices that were held by, of course, Jesus, uh, who was anointed as prophet, priest, and king, uh, you know, the one that uh, is greatest of all. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see and to experience again through our reading of Samuel chapter 10 just how that came about. Absolutely. Well, let's dig in because uh, we, starting with chapter 10, verse 1, we get that that flask of oil, the, the anointing mm -hmm. that happens right away. And this is a continuation of what we were talking about yesterday. But it says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not Yahweh anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of Yahweh 
and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that Yahweh has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come into the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine, flute and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of Yahweh will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay, that's through verse 8. So he, it, it's interesting transition because we're not told a lot. Certainly there's some conversation going on that isn't revealed in the scripture. But if we just read it as it's stated, he basically says, I want to tell you something. And then he pours oil on his head. <laughs> and, and <then laughs> right. The way he asks it as a question is also fascinating. He says, has not Yahweh anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? Now, the way that's written, I, I would expect Saul to say, I don't know, has he? I mean, I guess he has. He just poured a bunch of oil on my head. Because just moments before this, he didn't even know who Samuel was. The, his young assistant, his, the young boy that was with him, is the one who told him to go talk to Samuel, the seer. And when he gets there, he doesn't even recognize him as the seer. So this has gone from him not even knowing who this guy is to being anointed king of Israel within a very short time frame. Right, right. Well, this is one of those kinds of questions that demands a yes answer. You know, it's 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 asked in a way that um, it demands the answer yes, that basically he's telling him that, you know, you are anointed as prince over the people of Israel. Uh, how much he knew before that? Um, you're, you know, you you probably are right. You know, it's like, how much did Saul actually know before all of this started to take place here in uh, with Samuel? So, but um, n nonetheless, uh, he has to be really just. I would think, you know, and think if it was you or if it was me, how um, overwhelming this might have been to to think that wow, you know, what an honor, what is what. What a privilege to be able to serve in this capacity, and what and all the questions must have been going through his head, like uh, what does this mean <laughs> as far as what does what would I do as king, and how will I be, and how will I act? But all of those questions, even if he had those, are going to be answered as we continue to go through this text. Well, he gives him also some signs, right? He says there are mm -hmm. three signs that will come ahead of you. I guess it makes sense that if he's saying something of such prophetic value, he, he needs to accompany it by signs. Because Saul, or really anybody else, isn't necessarily going to just 
take his word for it. At least I wouldn't think so. You said if it were us, you'd be honored. I guess I would think, well, who's this crazy guy? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I I would think that the people of Israel would know Samuel. You know, they they would be familiar with him. Even if they hadn't seen him, they would know uh, something of this prophet. But at the same time, you know, the signs are going to reveal the, the, the divine um, almighty power and wisdom of God, you know, so, uh, and, and that, you know, one of the things we know of God is that um, he can see the future, he knows all things, and so uh, for Samuel to be given this information uh, through the Spirit, of course, um, you know, to actually have these things take place in time as he goes forward are, are definite signs that uh, reveal truth that you are the prince, you are now the king of of Israel. Well, the first of these three signs makes sense because the reason mm-hmm. why that he went to uh, Samuel in the first place is because he's looking for his dad's donkeys. He has this herd right. of donkeys that you know, we talked a little bit yesterday about whether this was indicative of his, or maybe I should say a foreshadowing of his poor ability to shepherd that he he's lost these donkeys, or maybe it's just a, a fact of what's going on. Um, but then he loses these donkeys, and his the boy that's with him says, well, let's go to the seer, because he says, you know what? No, I think we should go back to dad, because he's going to quit caring about these donkeys. He's going to be worried about us. So I think it's interesting that when he finds Samuel, Samuel says, well, don't worry about the donkeys. They've been found. And then now the first sign is related to those donkeys. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and, it, and it surely answers some questions, too, as far as, you know, where were, where were the donkeys? No one's ever going to know that, probably, but that the donkeys now have been found, um, which would take, uh, some anxiety off of his dad, but uh, you're right. I mean, he was he was definitely anxious about more about his son than he was, of, of course, the donkeys, which is a good sign that there is definitely a loving relationship between him and his father. Yeah, it says the donkeys that, that these people oh, over at Rachel's tomb is are going to tell you that the donkeys are found, but your father's worried about you now. Uh, and what shall I do? So he's been gone for some time, I suppose. Right. And then the second sign, you shall go on from there farther and come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel. Now, Bethel's this the worship place, and they're carrying three young goats, three loaves of bread, and a skin of wine. They're going to give him some, but those things, I, I guess I would assume, are for sacrifices or for offerings there at the, at the temple or the, I should say, the high place in Bethel. Yeah, that's what that's what that sounds like, and that's what it, it, it's pretty much. Uh, we're going to see that that's revealed as well, too. But um, here, you know, God at Bethel, um, the word Bethel being uh, the house of God. Uh, this is a place of worship. So yeah, this all makes sense. That uh, this could definitely be, um, you know, things that are mentioned here are definitely used for uh, for worship. And then, of course, the third sign is going to be going up. Uh, we have another El, Elohim here, Gibeath Elohim, the hill of God. Uh, so he mm-hmm. says, then you shall go up there, and there's going to be a bunch of Philistines, and that's going to be important, too. Um, anything else you want to lay down before we read the next section, As and we'll see how it goes? No, let's, let's just keep on moving. Here we go. When he turned his back to leave Samuel... 
God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. All right, thus ends our text so far. We're at the end of verse 16. So take us through this. Uh, you know, those things are starting to come to pass, but he also runs into his uncle. Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, this is interesting because, you know, we're, t- we're talking about uh, what's happening to him uh, as he continues to um, move toward actually becoming uh, the king and recognized, I should say, as, as king by the people. And here we already get a taste of, of some of that as well. Um, so here we have him. What's the interesting part here is that he's given this gift of prophecy, you know, to be able to prophesy. Uh, and uh, that's kind of interesting. I mean, this is Samuel's uh, primary office is to uh, be the one who is the prophet. But here it looks as though Saul is also given this gift of being able to prophesy as well. Um, Not so much, I don't think, at least I don't get it in this text in a competitive sense, but more in uh, the sense that as king, this is one of the gifts that uh, God is giving him, uh, the the gift to be able to uh, prophesy. because, I mean, it goes, you know, it says there in verse 12, and a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. It sounds as though there's a little confusion there among those that were uh, there at that point. Um, so it's interesting to see that... Um, you know that, that again that Saul, as the prince or king of uh, Israel, is receiving this wonderful gift. And then you are asking about his his uncle here in verse fourteen. Um, you know, saying to him to, and to his servants, "Where did where did you go?" And of course, we get back to the donkeys again. Um, and so uh, they ended up explaining that when they couldn't find the donkeys, they went to Samuel. And then Saul's uncle says again, you know, um, then what did Samuel say to you? And then, you know, he lays it out here. He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. Uh, so that should have indicated to his uncle that uh, the any kind of concern that his dad had um, would have been rectified at this point. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So it's just interesting. How much did the uncle know about all of this as well? I mean, why would that statement be placed there in, in verse 16? 
Well, and we also see, I think, something else. You know, on the one hand, this giving him the power to prophesy, it obviously fulfills a sign to let him know that this mm -hmm. gift, this office that he's been given is from God. Perhaps we could also look at, at, look at it in the sense that he's being prepared, in a sense, for his office as king. But also, you know what it reminds me of? It's this divisiveness in his hometown. You know, they're, they're, they're saying, you know, is Saul now one of the prophets? Isn't this the son of Kish, you might paraphrase? And, and it makes me mm -hmm. think, of course, of Jesus, right? So, so mm -hmm. he's teaching in his own synagogue, and they say, this is Matthew 13. They say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called mm -hmm. Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, etc., etc.? And then Jesus famously says, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, in his own household. And, and so we see here, you know, there's an incongruity between the way he's acting now, speaking in the manner of a prophet, prophesying for Yahweh. Isn't this the same guy who the day before literally didn't even really know who the seer was or the prophet of God was his own, his own servant or his own, the own boy who was with him helping, you know, this guy is this tall, handsome, rich guy. His family's rich. He's never had to wear anything. Dad takes care of everything for him. He loses the donkeys, but he doesn't really care. He's just like, whatever, let's just go back home. The boy's like, no, let's go to the seer. This guy doesn't have a care in the world. Now suddenly he's the king, he's acting like a prophet, and his hometown people are like, is that Saul? No, couldn't be. I, I think there's definitely a connection there. Kind of makes you wonder if some of the same things happened with Moses, you know? I mean, Moses uh, growing up um, under the Pharaoh and then, you know, uh, then is, is cast out and then he becomes a, a shepherd and then all of a sudden he comes back and he's the guy that's going to prophesy all these plagues and all the, of, of how they're going to, how he's come to deliver the people of God. And so we see, see a little bit there too in the one who kind of foreshadows uh, the coming of the one who's greatest and that is Jesus, you know. So, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. There's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of connection there, I think, too. Yep. Well, we see, of course, God using the people that He picks for these That's roles. Correct. And, but the interesting Wasn't thing that about Paul, Saul, who used to persecute the church, you know, it's like <laughs> right. Also you know, named I mean, Paul, Saul, for instance. What's that? Oh, he's also named Saul, just by coincidence. Yeah, there you go. He was also named Saul. <laughs> there you go. It's probably there's probably a lot more to that. So, but yeah, it's interesting, so, you know. Yeah, of course. And of course, you know, the other thing about Saul, though, is he also not only reflects God's choice, so to speak, because nothing happens without God's consent, but right. it really represents what the people want from a king, you know, and that's why I mentioned the, the wealthy and pretty nice to look at and strong, and he's a head taller than everybody else. And, you know, he's the guy that everybody's like, yeah, this is what a king looks like, and he's going to he's going to represent us and rule over us. That's what they want. But interestingly enough, when God finally picks him, the first thing we're told about him, or one of the first things we're told about him, is that his own people doubt it. They're like, what? No, this can't be. This guy, he's acting like a prophet at this point. Surely, surely not. And we see that in Jesus. And as you pointed out, Moses, time and again, we see this same motif repeated in Scripture to show that God is in control, not not us. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so... so 
Evidently, if you if they would if he would have been a short, dumpy guy, he probably would not have been selected as king. Is that what this is saying here? I, well, that's what I would say. Yeah, because the first thing we're told about him is what he looks like. Well, I, I, I wouldn't think, have had a know, chance. <laughs> yeah, no, me, me either. <laughs> no one would have picked me. Um, no, that's, that's right. but that's what they say. I mean, when we're first told about him, it says there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kit. Uh, Sorry, son of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, right? So that's the dad's name. And yeah, right. he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. And the guest yesterday well, pointed him, out. <laughs> yeah, well, but you know what? I think we're okay because the guest pointed out yesterday that oftentimes when we're talked about, when the Bible mentions someone being taller, like uh, Goliath, or, or um, you know, there, he listed off a couple other incidences in Bible where, like, the Ammonites were taller. There's this group of taller people end up being the adversaries of the Israelites. And I can't say that Saul is an adversary, but he certainly isn't the king that they were hoping that he would be. Oh, and he's certainly not the king that God wants for them. Yeah, and it's and it's also, I mean, it, it's symbolic of strength and power. I mean, if you, if you think about it, I mean, um, the bigger, the taller, the stronger, uh, you know, uh, the the more you think in terms of power, and uh, that's what you want in a king. You want a powerful king. You want one who, you know, stands ahead above everyone else. You know, kind of kind of a king. So. Well, that's it, and that's what they wanted. They didn't want what God wants. They wanted somebody that you know the the people around them would look at and go, "Oh yeah, that's that's a king." But uh, and oh he's man, handsome well, on top of it, <laughs> that's right, that's right. I don't know what connotated handsome back then, but um, we'll, we'll leave it to them to decide that. Well, anything else? You know, we just have a minute or so before the break. Uh, anything else we want to leave? Because I don't want to move on until until we come back. Right. So, um, not not really. I just it's it's interesting just how the uncle just comes on the scene here, and uh, you know just starts asking questions and trying to also I think figure out um, what's going on. I mean, he wants to know what is happening, and he's not really getting any answers up to this point. Well, we'll leave it there as we pause for just a few moments to take a break and listen to these messages. But folks, don't go anywhere. When we return, Pastor Dieterding and I will keep on going with 1 Samuel chapter 10. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome 
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dr. Curtis Dieterding, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Myers, Florida. Friends, thanks for gathering around God's Word with us this morning. Thy Strong Word airs on AM850 in St. Louis, but you can also stream it live or on demand at kfuo.org or on the KFUO app or your favorite podcasting service. You can also listen to KFUO on your smart speaker. Just ask it to tune into KFUO Radio. If you have any questions or comments, you can send me a message at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E, spell it right, at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer any of your questions or comments. Anyway, folks, thanks so much for listening and being a part of the program. Well, now, Pastor Dieterding, before the break, you know, I kind of wanted to slow us down before we got into uh, Saul actually being uh, declared king. He's been anointed at this point. The proclamation is coming next. Um, Let's go ahead and read that. I'm going to read all the way through verse 24, which is most of the rest of the chapter. Now Samuel called the people together to Yahweh at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore I present yourselves before Yahweh by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot, and he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of Yahweh, Is there a man still to come? And Yahweh said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran, and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, He was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who Yahweh has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. All right, pausing right there. There's only a few more verses left. But yeah, so he gathers them all at Mizpah. We've heard of Mizpah before. We, we saw that back in chapter 7. It's where the Israelites confess their sins. We saw it also in Judges, interestingly enough, where the chiefs of the Israelites had decided to eradicate the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's own tribe. And now we're back at Mizpah again, getting ready to declare one of the new Benjamites uh, the king. Yeah, I, so the word Mizpah actually, if you were going to transliterate it directly over to English, would be Watchtower, which is not just in one spot, but it, there were several of these uh, located throughout. So um, the ones that we hear in other places within the Scripture are not always the same you know, the same lighthouse. So, I mean, if you tried to figure it out geographically speaking, uh, it, it wouldn't always fit. So, but here it is again. It seems like uh, it, what's really interesting, though, is that um, it's at the watchtower that these uh, incredible um, acts of grace seem to happen or forgiveness or repentance, you know, things of that nature seem to be taking place there where the watchtower is. So, um, 
Yeah, it's just it's just an interesting interesting uh, note there on that particular word. Excellent. No, I agree with that. Well, what else do you have for us? Take us through the text. So you've got this uh, you've got this watchtower um, here, the, where the people are now gathered, and uh, the Lord uh, speaks to them here in this place, and. As he does time and time again, he reminds them of this deliverance uh, from the hands of the Egyptians. A deliverance, of course, which we know on this side of the cross is a deliverance that uh, actually points to the greater deliverance that we have in Christ. But when we look at at it in the context here, it's a reminder to them, because he wants the people to always remember how he delivered them from their enemies. And, uh, and of course, that theme will carry all the way through the Old Testament uh, history, uh, all the way up until the time of Christ. And, and, of course, Christ Jesus reveals and shows the fulfillment of all of what God is promising his people, those who are enlightened, uh, that would be the Gentiles, that would be us, uh, who are not part of the chosen uh, Israelites, but are brought into the new Israel. And so, therefore, um, our delivery is also from the hands of our enemies as well. But he said, you know, I've done all of this for you. And he and he could say the same to us as well. Through my son Jesus, I've done all of this for you. Uh, through my prophet Moses, I've done this. And you continue to reject your God, you know, who saves you from all of this. And... Uh, and you've even begged me, in a sense, you know, that you want a king. And so he was just saying at this point, therefore now you need to present yourselves before the Lord, uh, you who have rejected your God, and you're going to receive a king now. And it's going to change the way in which we have our relationship is what's going to happen. All of that doesn't isn't said there, but he had said, and as I mentioned earlier, he had said to the people, you know, if you have a king, this is what this is what you can expect. This is what's going to happen. And I I suppose, you know, as we read from 20 through 24 that this is the beginning of what he's talking about that there's going to now be people chosen to uh, work under the king, to work for the king and with the king. There's going to be uh, troops that they're going to have to pull together. And so now he's calling out the tribes by your thousands. You know, So it's interesting to see um, each of the tribes are going to be able to recognize who this new king is going to be and which tribe this king comes from. Well, the Benjamites, you know, I don't know if they have a better reputation by the time this comes around. They've certainly been able to regrow their numbers since the time of Judges. But I also find it just fascinating that the the opening salvo, the opening, uh, I guess, comments from the prophet before he, I guess, anoints or he has already anointed him, but presents to them God's chosen king. He gives them that another lecture like you were mentioning, you know, today. It's not today is a great day because God has given us a king. It's today you have rejected your God who did all of these great things for you. And yet it ends not with repentance, but with long live the king, which is fascinating. At least to me, it should be fascinating to anybody who, as you were talking about, considers how we interact with God. He gives us all these wonderful gifts. He protects us. He provides for us. And then he gives us his will to follow, and then we reject his will. 
we don't listen to God. We want somebody other than God to be our ruler. Um, and in this in this particular instance, God has given into their demands, and He's going to use Saul for good. But typically, Saul throughout the scriptures is characterized by his fear and incompetence, his reluctance, and we get a little sense of that here because when it comes time to say, "All right, come on up, Saul," he's hiding in the baggage, whatever that means, but he's hiding. <laughs> uh, you know, he's going to have a great first start. And we're going to learn about that tomorrow in chapter 11. You know, it's sort of an auspicious beginning. He's got this battle, this victory. The people are very happy with him. But then it's kind of downhill from there. But it sort of starts downhill. What What does it mean he's hiding in the baggage? What's going on there? Well, before we get to the hiding in the baggage, I want, I'd like to go back. I'm not, I'm not trying to just uh, uh, ignore that, but uh, going back to this rejecting, you know, you have rejected your God. You know, he lays out the fact. I, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of it's, it's not just the fact that they turn to other idols and ways to worship and uh, other gods that that. God is rejected and feeling rejected, um, or, or expressing, I should say, expressing that he's been rejected. But he's been rejected as their king. He's been rejected as the one who rules them, because they want another ruler. They want a king instead. They want a, a, a king that could physically sit on a throne instead of God. And he's pointing out, but but. Uh, there's no one as great as I am. I have delivered you from all of this, from the kings, kingdoms that were oppressing you. Um, why would you want a king? You know, why would you want that king set over you when I'm your king? I'm, I'm your God. I'm the one who saved you from all the calamities and distresses. So I feel that, that as I read that, there is some of that going on here, that God um, is not happy. I mean, he was trying to tell, he was doing all he could to discourage them from having a human king. And, you know, you had the greatest king of all, the Lord Yahweh, your God. Oh, so now let's go to the, let's go to the bag. It's just, <laughs> well, before we go there, let me the piggyback on, let me piggyback yes. on what you were saying. Sure, so sure. I think another aspect of it is also not only that they're rejecting God as their king, which is certainly the case and laid out in scripture, right. but because God had promised them a king, he promised them, it's also a sign of their impatience, that they're not waiting for God's timing. So I think another aspect to God declaring all the things that he had done is to acknowledge that he's a God who keeps his promises. And so instead of waiting for God's timing, which would you know be the Messiah, they say, no, give us a king now. And then, of course, give us a king that is like our neighbors, as opposed to what you would want. So I feel like that added aspect just shows uh, the sin being compounded upon itself in the different ways in which they're rejecting God. Not just that they don't want to be led by God, but they also are just impatient for God to fulfill his promises. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So, uh, yeah, so going back to this passage, um, when he was uh, calling out the tribes and brought out the tribes you know, of Israel, um, you know, we have the the tribe of Benjamin, and then uh, Saul is in this tribe, we know. Uh, and so they inquire again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And uh, I, I'm sorry, but I, you know, I find some humor in that, in the sense that, uh, you know, 
here's the guy who's supposed to stand ahead above everyone else and be the one that's strong and comes out and and really leads with 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 uh, you know aggressively with force and strength, uh, but he's in the baggage. And you know, just looking at, I had to go to commentaries because I. It's like, why is he doing that? Because there's nothing that really indicates um, why he was doing that, at least in in this portion of the reading. And the only thing that that uh, they would suggest is that he was shy. And I'm like, why would he be shy? And is this the kind of a man that God would want as king? One who is. Or is he hiding there in the in the baggage because um, there's a lot of uh, maybe uncertainty and not not the not the unknown you know that uh, that that's coming. So yeah, it's it's just an interesting uh, part of the story. Well, I think that the shyness, and I've read that too. I, I'm not a hundred percent convinced by that. I, but perhaps it's certainly an aspect of his personality. What I see more is what you alluded to, and that is fear. Fear right. that he's that as king, he now has to lead, which is certainly a formidable task. Leading is hard work. I'm not sure that he's probably used to too much of that. The other thing is he also had just been prophesying with these prophets. So there's some aspect that perhaps he knows he knows a little bit. Mm-hmm. God has prepared him for what's to come, and there's natural fear in that. But here's what it kind of reminds me of, and I don't think this is too much of a leap. Maybe it is. But in uh, in Canada, when the Speaker of the House of Commons is, after he's elected, then he has to be, and today it's a ceremonially ceremonially done, but it's done every time, he has to be drugged to the speak, dragged to the Speaker's chair. So, really? Yes. Yeah, so Justin Trudeau and Eric O'Toole were the last ones. So it's the prime minister and the a leader of the mm. opposition party. They grab the new speaker on either side and they drag him down the aisle to the chair. And the ceremony, the ceremony comes from a couple different aspects, one of which is that there's supposed to be some sort of reluctance to take on this important position. Like you, and we say this too, about even offices mm-hmm. within the church, we say the guy who wants it probably shouldn't be it. <laughs> we, mm-hmm. You know, the guy who really wants to do the job maybe isn't qualified, but the, the but it's also this playful ceremony on something that's kind of serious. And that is back in the day, the speaker of the house um, would you know, speak on behalf of the monarch, or he would give his own opinions perhaps against the king. And if the king didn't like what he said, the speaker could lose his head. So being speaker of the house wasn't exactly a desirable job. Now, bringing it back around, and I promise I'm going somewhere, it makes me wonder if by this point, Saul, recognizing that he's not really the king, he's the speaker of God, he's ruling in God's stead, and so the reluctance there very may, may be maybe because of his timidity, but I almost wonder if it's more about the gravitas of if he doesn't rule right. in the way that God wants him to, he could lose his head. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah there's, I feel like there's a combination of a lot of things that must be rushing through his mind and in his heart. And just like you said, just after he's had this experience of being able to prophesy, how much of the future has God placed into his mind and into his heart that 
is bringing on some of that fear and that maybe even some reluctance about, yeah, I'm not sure this is where I need to be and that it should be me at this point. Um, so I, I, and we, just like we've, we've talked about earlier, I mean, we see this in a lot of the people that God has chosen, uh, to carry his word and his prophecy, uh, to his people. So, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting, it's just interesting to see this in here, um, and that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the words were not held back, you know. This, that, like this was not left out. It gives us a, a flavor and a, and a taste of uh, where Saul was in that moment. Absolutely, I think we also always have to be because we are the recipients of this, and this isn't the first time that we should have heard these stories or read the accounts. So I think we have to read them in view of David, right? So you think of Saul who is at this point hiding in the baggage, whatever that means, I guess just all the stuff they brought. So here we have Saul hiding after he'd been anointed as king, after he had already received the signs confirming his anointing. Mm -hmm. He should have been confident in God by this point, but we see him as being fearful and insecure. On the meanwhile, David, when we're kind of introduced to him, not for the first time, but for the first major time when we see him um, showing his character, we, we think of Goliath, and he's running mm-hmm. to the battle, and then he's running up to Goliath. He, of course, Saul's king by then, and he's telling Saul, I don't need these things. I'm trusting in God. And throughout the scriptures, David really only ever says that he fears two things. Uh, once it's said that he fears uh, Ashish, the king of Gath, but that was because of his own mm-hmm. foolishness. But typically, the only thing that David ever says he fears is God. So, so here right. we have Saul, who fears everything but God, perhaps, and then, of course, you have David, who puts his fear, hope, and trust in God alone, and so that's going to be what we're being told about Saul now becomes that much more important when David, the man after God's own heart, comes on the scene. Of course, David, the king who points forward to Jesus. Right. That's all. That's That's... That's great. Uh, those, those, are, those are great words. Uh, really great thoughts too about um, the coming of, of King David as uh, as we move forward as as well. But yeah, just very interesting. And then yeah, long live the king. I've been studying. I guess it probably helps yeah. that I've been studying David ahead of the game here. But yeah, <laughs> what? But but you're about to bring up long live the king, and yeah, that strikes me as interesting just because of the way it started. You know, it's like you miserable people who rejected God. You wanted a king. Fine, here's a king. And I don't know. I would expect them to go. No, no, we want to return to the Lord, but they don't. What do they say? They say long live the king. Go ahead. Brother. They say they say long live the king, and I, you know, I did not. Uh, take the time to see if there's any connection with this and where that saying comes today. You know, is this is this part of the history of um, you know parliaments and places like you know Britain where they where they uh, crown kings? Did did they get that long live the queen, long live the king statements? Did it originate from? Uh, what went on here, you know, because this is, I believe this is the first time that, that we hear this in the scripture, um, and because, you know, this is the first king that's now uh, anointed. And so it's, it, I don't know, it just 
kind of curious. I don't know. Do you know anything about that? If there's anything, any kind of connection there between these words? I know you're the ones that's supposed to be asking me some of the questions, but in this case, I didn't have a chance to really look into that. Have you ever heard of anything uh, about the connection well, I, between what they do today and what they were doing at this time? Well, as you said, you know, we this is the first time we see it in Scripture, although we'll see it time and again, long live mm-hmm. the king. Um, you know, I'm not sure. You know, we hear it all the time in all different cultures. Um, right. I, I really don't know. I, I, I think that if we're talking about, you know, as I think about it, I, I wonder if, it just is a natural development of what you would want from your monarch, you know? So I, I think it might've developed beside each other, but again, I don't know. I'm just talking out of my, out of the cuffs of my, of my <laughs> sleeves. Yeah, it's I sense just it an way. interesting thought. That's all. <laughs> it is though. It is an interesting thought because it's so often that we do use language and other kinds of things that, that uh, develop because they come from the Bible and people don't even know it. And then there's often times where it's come from other proverbs or something. Yeah, that'd be an interesting, interesting paper to write. <laughs> you yeah, there write you that. go. Submitted to the Lutheran yeah. Witness. Yeah, I, I think I've got other things I need to do that's a little bit more pressing right now. But. I hear you there, brother. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So then uh, we then we come to here to this last part and um, the last few verses here. Yeah, let's read those. Here we go. This is verses 25 through 27. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book, and he laid it up before Yahweh. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him, and they brought him no present, but he held his peace. So we've seen that term, worthless fellow, a couple of times. Just no good nicks, right? This is bad guys, people up to no good. Um, yeah, they questioned Saul. And uh, yeah, take us through this. This is interesting because Samuel sends them all away. It's interesting that Saul goes home with some, I guess, some guards, right? Or something like that. Right, but right. there are people who, not everybody's excited. No, and you know what? It's already a, a kind of a foretaste of what's coming, you know, for all the kings, not just for him, but but, but this whole idea of having a human king uh, reigning on the throne. And, and and it's really interesting in, in verse 25 that Samuel actually gets to write his own job description as far as his rights and duties of kingship. Now, we... we take from the Word of God here that, you know, this is all part of his uh, gift of prophecy, too. He knows what the rights and duties of the king are going to be. I mean, he doesn't just come up with this off the top of his head uh, because he lays it up before the Lord. You know, this is all done according to the will of God and according to um, how he is going to um, conduct himself as their king. But it's, I still find that very fascinating. I mean, he's telling the people um, that these are the rights, these are the duties, and he puts them in a book. Uh, this becomes kind of a, uh, a constitution of, of how the king is going to operate and, and govern his people. I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, and then he sends everybody home. 
And it's interesting, too, that he also goes to his house as well. So, yes. Yeah, there's no palace or anything like that for him to go to, no, no. capital or anything. He just goes home. <laughs> yep, just go home. <laughs> now I'm the king. <laughs> yeah, it's, so, yeah. King. We'll see you later. <laughs> so where's the castle? You know, when is that going to start happening? You're going to get an architect? You're going to have to hire, you know, hire an architect to get this thing going? Is God going to tell him how... How to, you know, what's what's, what's going to happen? This is interesting because we're right here at the very beginning of everything that has to do with a new king on board, and uh, I'm sure that there had to be a lot of conversation about. Okay, now that we have this king, what's this all going to look like you know, between us and the king and God? You know, how's this whole relationship going to work itself out? Well, and these worthless fellows who quip, you know, how can this man mm-hmm. save us? It's not mm-hmm. as though these guys are faithful to Yahweh or the Lord, and they're just like, no, our Lord is the, our our King is only the Lord or Yahweh. No, the Bible says they're worthless fellows, and so they hate the King that God has given, and they're described as you know people who are up to no good. But I got to say, I do like this part. They despised him, and they didn't bring him a present. I, well, I I didn't see where they you should had be ashamed to of themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 Saul is diplomatic because it says he held his peace, so he didn't point out the faux pas. I just think of all the pomp and circumstance around King Charles's coronation, and you know, it's like all that really necessary. And and in some ways, yes, because the king, whether then or now, is entering into a holy office that he has to operate according to God's will. Whether Saul did or King Charles Charles will is, I guess, up to debate slash the future. But that's the truth. You know, God has established all authority on earth, whether it be president, king, or or committee. And you have to operate according to the way God wants you to operate. And so there is some credence for the prophet setting down the rules here and presenting them before Yahweh. But anyway, we're towards the end of our program. Oh, by the way, I did think of one thing about long live the king, and it's not quite the same. But when we went through Daniel, what we heard a lot was, O king, live forever. And oh, that's it was right. A greeting yes. That they always mm-hmm. said before the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, whether that's the same, I guess, is up to some debate. Hopefully, folks can write in. They can let me know at pastorboo at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, any last words? And we have a minute left, brother, before the end of the show. Yeah, I mean, what we're gonna, what you're, what you're gonna see as you move forward tomorrow is that you're gonna see that Saul um, just goes about his business, you know, <laughs> what he knows to do, you know, how he, how he's been living. It, it, it hasn't changed him immediately. Let's put it this way: that he's king. Uh, you see that he kind of lives among the people yet, and he still works among the people, and. Um, He's not the kind of king we think of today, you know, that's uh, in a palace and has his thrones and have people all around him, because this is just developing. It's just now beginning, uh, you know, this, this whole kingship. And uh, that he held his peace. You know, I mean, he, he could have he done something. He was king. I mean, he didn't have to put up with that. He could have gotten rid of those worthless fellows, but he doesn't, because that's really would have changed the course of history right there. But uh, it's interesting that he's held his peace, and that's the direction that this starts to go here, at least initially. Well, we will see how it continues, but for now, I'll have to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Curtis Dieterding, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Fort Myers, Florida. Pastor, thank you for being on the show. Well, it's always a joy, and God bless. 
Next time we open up chapter 11, Saul is now king over Israel, but his reign actually begins quite positively when he must lead the army in battle against the Ammonite tyrant Nahash. In exchange for peace, though, Nahash makes some strange demands, but Yahweh empowers King Saul to defeat the Ammonite threat. We'll talk about it tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong words.